Open your eyes, time to wake up. Enough is enough, is enough, is enough. Open your eyes, time to wake up. Enough is enough, is enough, is enough. You're listening to No Borders Media. This is a feature interview with two members of Rose City Antifa, one of the long standing and active anti fascist groups in North America. Rose City, which is Portland, Oregon, has been the site of attempts at neo-Nazi and far-right organizing for decades. As recently as May 2017, two people were killed and one other badly injured in an attack by a white nationalist on light rail train in Portland. Recently, Rose City Antifa has confronted the far-right Patriot Pair protest, an umbrella for white nationalists and neo-Nazis to march and protest together. This in-depth feature interview goes into details about various strategic and tactical considerations for anti-fascist groups based on the experiences of Rose City Antifa. We discuss responses to the hesitancy of liberal anti-racists to Antifa tactics, as well as the distinctions between the various neo-Nazis and white nationalists who have organized more publicly in the past two years. Rose City Antifa organizing is rooted in relentless research about far-right threats, direct action against those threats, but also building and maintaining political and cultural left spaces. We discuss these topics in detail. This interview also addresses the controversial question of gun ownership in the United States from the point of view of anti-fascist organizing. This interview was conducted on September 1st, 2018 for No Borders Media. I'm on the line with Isaac and David. Isaac and David are members of Rose City Antifa. Rose City refers to Portland, Oregon. And Rose City Antifa is considered one of the older or the oldest of the modern generation of Antifa groups in uh, North America. Isaac and David, welcome to No Borders Media. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. Let's start with some basics. Uh, talk about Rose City Antifa. How, how did your group emerge? What was the immediate impetus? I know that you definitely have been around before Trump. A lot of the a lot of the uh, organizing that we're considering today around Antifa, a lot of it dates to the, the Trump, Trump period, but uh, you guys have been around for more than a decade. So talk about the origins of Rose City Antifa. So this is David. Um, yeah, so Rose City Antifa has been around since 2007. Back then, there was a neo-Nazi music festival being planned here for Portland, Oregon, and uh, it was called Hammerfest, uh, organized by the, the Hammerskins neo-Nazi group. There was an ad hoc committee of people that got together in order to oppose that conference or oppose that uh, festival, and they ended up getting it canceled. And then after that, um, that experience, um, a group of those people who had been involved with the ad hoc organizing wanted to create a more permanent group to be able to do that kind of organizing, to be able to oppose various neo-Nazi groups and, and events happening in the area. And so that was the birth of RCA. When folks from outside think of Portland, Portland is considered uh, relatively liberal compared to other parts of the U.S. For what it's worth, it's, it's, uh, it's an area of the country, or it's, and it's a state. Oregon is a state where um, it tends to vote uh, Democrat rather than Republican. Also, I guess um, there's the perception of it being politically progressive, even hipster or what have you even stereotypically hipster, but I know there's much more to it. And the other thing, I guess, would be that Portland is historically and contemporarily a mainly white area compared to other parts of the U.S. So uh, let's break down some of the stereotypes about organizing and and the political culture in Portland itself and then in Oregon in general. Sure. So this is Isaac. 
So what many people don't know about Oregon and, and Portland is that it has a long history of very virulent racism and white supremacy. The KKK was extremely active in Oregon in the 1920s. And up until in the 1990s, there was also a very strong neo-Nazi skinhead um, presence in Oregon. So, and throughout that whole time, there were a lot of you know, racist acts committed against Portland's black population, including by police officers. There is quite a history in Portland racism. So neo-Nazi movements, white supremacist movements, don't spring out of nothing in the city. They do have a long history in the state. The dynamic that I've observed is that when you're in what's considered a generally politically liberal milieu, people don't take <laughs> neo-Nazis and fascism as seriously. It's considered a marginal thing. So can you talk about that dynamic? Do you, do you, do you get that same sense that you don't get as many numbers of people coming out because people are comfortable in, in a setting where their, their, their political dispositions, the liberal lefty political dispositions are reinforced daily and they can basically just consider uh, neo-Nazi violence or neo-Nazi organizing and far-right organizing just to be the exception and not something to be considered a threat. So this is David. Um, I think that it, not just in Portland, but I think in a lot of places now, there there is kind of a, a popular conception that a lot of these issues were put to rest with the the civil rights movement several decades ago, uh, and and therefore there there is a little bit of an incredulousness and uh, surprise when uh, fascist movements and and white supremacist movements are becoming more active. Um, and I think what we've seen, unfortunately, is we've seen that it's taken something tragic, like the uh, the attacks that happened here in Portland back in May of 2017 to sort of bring this to the forefront and to get media attention on some of these violent activities that are going on. Um, at that point, it's it's relatively easy to sort of bring out a, a, a wider, more popular movement in order to counteract these things. But the reason that uh, groups like RCA exist, the reason that uh, the activists in our group are, are committed to it is because we view this as kind of a constant thing. We know that these movements never go away, that they're always out there doing things in various levels of activities. So it's really important for, for groups like RCA to keep tabs on that and to uh, publish information to educate the community and let people know what's going on and try and uh, reduce some of that surprise and, and try and keep people aware of the threat as it, as it changes and, and ebbs and flows over the course of the years. You referred to violence in uh, May of 2017. Can you give our, our listeners a uh, background to what that was? So um, in May of 2017, Jeremy Christian, who had previously attended Patriot Prayer rallies in Montevilla on um, April 29th, stabbed two, stabbed three men on the max and killed two of them. Um, those men were stepping up in defense of two... Um, two girls who were being targeted by him, partly because one was wearing a hijab. And he was taken in by the police, and you know, during his trial he said things like, you know, death to Antifa. He's really an example of what the far right can do when it enables these kind of these acts. But that's kind of the basic gist he was harassing people on the max. And... Um, end up killing two people who stepped up in, in defense of other members of their community. We've referenced, uh, Patri- you've referenced Patriot Prayer now. So let's get into that a bit because the, the, it seems like current wave of, of, of organizing against 
neo-Nazis and fascism, I'm sure it en- encompasses a lot of things, but uh, the more public element of that is the, uh, the reactions to and um, confronting this thing called patriot prayer, which just briefly uh, is, is, um, is something that, well, I'll let you explain what it is, but it seems to make a point of going into politically liberal areas of, of Washington State, of Oregon, and of uh, California to basically provoke those communities. So, so talk about uh, what patriot prayer is and your response to patriot prayer. And, and as our listeners have just heard, it, the ultimate consequences of, of letting these groups flourish is, is deadly. So, so go ahead and explain what that organizing has been all about in the past year or so. So uh, this is David. Uh, Patriot Prayer is a, is a far-right group headed by a guy named Joey Gibson, and they're based in Vancouver, Washington, which is right across the river from Portland, Oregon. Um, and, yeah, a, a, as you said, it seems like a big part of their goal is to intimidate and to uh, provoke various uh, people on the left, you know, activists, um, and also various uh, at-risk community groups and the way that they do that, the, the thing that they, they do is they try to hold events in what they view to be uh, liberal areas. They try to invade, as they call it, and, um, and, and they're doing that in order to bring people out to provide them targets for either physical violence or intimidation and um, to, to build up their names and their, their uh, reputations as these kind of this kind of brute force of the far right, and they do that in conjunction with a lot of other groups. Obviously, they they work very closely with the Proud Boys, which has been in the news over the last few months here. Uh, but the real danger of Patriot Prayer um, that we see is not just the the violent threat that they represent, but the this notion of uh, entryism that we see happening, where a lot of white supremacist groups have uh, very specifically said on the record that they come to events like Joey Gibson's Patriot Prayer Rallies in order to recruit people because it's a place where uh, these white supremacists and fascists can kind of uh, be undercover in public and sort of hide under the, the cover of a, a MAGA hat or you know behind a tr- Trump T-shirts and so forth like that and then organize and, and get practice in, in having these sorts of physical presences. And this is something that uh, we as a group have specifically work to um, counteract by documenting, first of all, to, to prove that, in fact, that these are not just run-of-the-mill Republicans and Trump supporters. These are white supremacists, and they're, part of, <clears throat> they're members of, of very violent white supremacists and fascist groups in the area, and they're using this kind of cover, this, this free speech excuse to, to do their organizing. And that's why we have to go out and oppose these events, because... Um, that that's the kind of threat that, to the community that they continue to, to be. Describe what those responses have looked like on the streets of Portland over the past year. I know, we, you know today is uh, September 1st. We've just gotten out of all-out August, as some people refer to it, uh, mobilizations in Portland and Berkeley, in Charlottesville, in D.C. Um, the far right was using uh, the time around the anniversary of, of last year's Unite the Right in Charlottesville to organize other demos, although I'm sure the Patriot Prayer stuff had its own logic and justification for coming back to Portland in August. But describe what, what's that, what that's looked like on the streets. What's happened? I, I've observed, so I know, so I'm, I'm asking this question more for the listeners, but I know, you know these kinds of responses can range from just simply 
uh, to counter demos to full-on street fights. What, what's it look like in, uh, in Portland during these responses by Rose City Antifa and, and your various allies to uh, the far-right uh, uh, Patriot Pair folks? I think you summed it up well. This is Isaac, by the way. Um, it has ranged from you know, simple counter demos to full-on street fights. Um, a lot of that tends to depend on the police response. Um, which has typically been in Patriot Prayer's favor. But over the past year, from June 4th, 2017, all the way to um, August 4th of this year, we've seen a range of outcomes, outcomes where Patriot Prayer has gotten you know, 300 far-right hooligans into the streets to try to run off anti-fascists and been repulsed to times when anti-fascists have pushed Patriot Prayer out of town, humiliated them to times when police presence kept people apart and mostly in into noise-making contests. So it's looked a lot of different ways, but what we have tried to do every time is show up with the community and show that Portland does not want this organizing to happen in our city. We don't want neo-Nazis to come under the aegis of Patriot Prairie into our city to organize for racist violence. To people tuning in, this is No Borders Media. I'm your host, uh, Jaggi Singh, here in Montreal, and we're speaking with Isaac and David, who are two members of Rose City Antifa. Rose City is Portland, Oregon, which uh, and Rose City Antifa is one of the older Antifa groups in North America. They're speaking from a park in Portland, Oregon. Isaac and David, the Patriot Pair organizing that you've just described is a, is a good moment to get into maybe some tactical and strategic considerations. This show is unapologetically in support of anti-fascist organizing and a particular brand of anti-fascist organizing, which is what, what, what you guys do and what a lot of groups are doing across North America, which is uncompromisingly deplatforming neo-Nazis and racists, but also the understanding, as you've just pointed out, that often what seems like slightly more mainstream stuff or maybe less Nazi and more just pro-Trump is a form of entryism for the neo-Nazis uh, to recruit, to, to have a place to, to normalize themselves. And so, you know, this is not so much answering me, but it's more answering the debates that are happening in the broader political left around tactics and strategies to confront neo-Nazis and fascists. So it's pretty clear that you folks in Rose City Antifa and your allies are organizing to no platform these folks, to shut them down, to confront them. And there are others that would argue that, you know, just let them be. They're marginal. We can make fun of them. Confronting them, which, which often will mean masking up, uh, street fighting, um, a lot of imagery that uh, to, in the opinion of some, to mainstream folks is alienating. That's, that's counterproductive. So address the strategic and tactical choices that you're making as RCA, as Rose City Antifa, to de-platform these racists and fascists and uh, address that, that counterargument made by the more liberal, moderate element of anti-racists. This is David. So, um, you know, something that we're frequently asked is if if we didn't show up to to counter protest these groups, wouldn't they just go away? And I think using the example of Patriot Prayer, we can see that that is, in fact, not the case. When um, when there hasn't been rallies, what they do is they continue to go out and they've actually physically attacked people on the streets here in Portland. That's happened in a couple of instances. Uh, once on uh, Northeast Broadway here in Portland. They assaulted somebody who they were driving past in a truck. And then there was another altercation that happened in the Vancouver, Washington mall uh, where they attacked an, an African-American teenager. 
you know, this, this is, they are out there looking for confrontation. And by going out there and being that first line of defense for the community, we are uh, making ourselves the target of their confrontation. But that is, that is better, we think, than them being able to uh, go through the community unmolested and just attacking anybody that they see fit in order to gain notoriety from that and, and build on that via, in their movement via that kind of violence. Um, additionally, something that we've definitely seen is we've seen that our effects of confrontation have had a positive effect. We've seen their movement diminish. And although it, you know, they, they keep coming back and, and that's, you know, definitely frustrating, I think, both for the community and for us as a group, but we can see that the sort of turnover that they're getting There's we're seeing them get frustrated when they get a, a strong opposition by anti-fascists and other allied groups, it, it really kind of punches their movement in the gut, um, metaphorically speaking. Um, it, it really takes the, the energy out of their organizing because they have this, this ideology of um, power through this kind of street violence where they are able to roll um, completely at their own will through these liberal cities and sort of tell people what's what and exude this kind of political power. So when we step up and we, we counteract that and we keep them penned in at these events or are able to successfully no platform them, then that kind of uh, throws their plans for a loop and that frustrates them considerably. So it's, it's really having a positive effect. I think what we've seen over the course of this all out August is that by having these wide mobilizations, by having lots of people turn out and express to these groups that this sort of organizing and this sort of violence is not welcome in, in our cities, whether that be Portland, Austin, DC, Charlottesville, et cetera, um, that, that's having a positive effect and it's actually doing, um, doing a really good job in what we want it, want it to do. Another uh, strategic and tactical consideration is the distinctions that we make, because obviously, maybe not obviously, but how we would respond to a, a classic Republican gathering would be different than how we respond to uh, a neo-Nazi or fascist gathering. But what what is uh, what is of interest strategically and tactically is the in-between, you know, like from, from fascists and neo-Nazis, alt-right, uh, white nationalists, uh, the MAGA Make America Great Again Trump fans uh, and other variations of right and far right politics, um, you know, and those considerations are who gets no platform or not. Who do we, who do we respond to with a simple counter demo? Who do we not respond to at all? Who do we make sure we focus our energy on? Who is actually a fascist and who isn't? And you've addressed the entryism uh, around the Patriot Prayer because the Patriot Prayer certainly plays off of those gray areas by using, um, I guess, uh, just right-wing or far-right-wing politics as a cover for a lot of these uh, white nationalist racists. But talk about how you make those distinctions and what are the important distinctions between, you know, uh, all-out genocidal Daily Stormer-style fascists on one end and uh, people who vote for the Republican Party and Democrats sometimes, too, on the right-wing on the other end of the spectrum. So this is Isaac. A lot of those questions are sort of settled by our research. So we will look into, you know, people's photos we've got from these events, these demos that future prayers holding. We'll look into their Facebooks, into their writings online. And that will usually, like, elucidate where they lie on that spectrum. You know, if we see them spouting anti-Semitism, sharing alt-right memes, things like that, it really clears up some of that um, distinction that they can sort of 
hide in public a little bit. Um, but I agree there is also this blurring of the lines. We've seen a lot of far-right entries and by people like James Alsop in the Pacific Northwest who became a Republican party-elected official um, within the party in Washington, I believe. Um, and we've seen that with you know, neo-Nazis and very openly white nationalist candidates like um, Corey Stewart and Patrick Little in um, South, Carolina, South, Car- or South Carolina and California, respectively. So there is definitely this distinction, but a lot of the time, or there is that, that blurring of lines, but a lot of the time their own writings, their own online, online activities will really allow us to make, make the distinctions much easier because they, they generally can't help themselves from sharing these, you know, horrible, like writing horrible things and sharing horrible memes online. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is David. I would just, I would just add to that. Yeah, it, it, they really are able to speak for themselves. And we, and we consider that, that sort of documentation very important because um, the, those distinctions are important. You know, it's important not to tar everybody with the same brush or pretend that they're all the same because they're not. And the, the sort of individual tactics and the individual um, sort of strength which we, we go after or oppose these various groups very much depends on that. And it's, it's totally worth it, in our opinion, to kind of wade into that, that tangled web and start trying to elucidate exactly who the various people are and what their connections are and what these groups seek to do and the differences between that because it's important for people to understand what's going on. We, we don't want to make this um, simple necessarily. You know, it's it's very easy once we see the groups that we're up against for for people to determine how uh, abhorrent those views are on their own and and then respond accordingly. So we we are very much into the idea of like letting letting these groups like showing the public who these groups really are and what they truly believe, and then the public can make their own. Uh, decisions based on that. For our listeners, documentation has been referred to a lot, and I, I'd encourage people who are interested in these issues to check out the uh, Rose City Antifa website. It's rosecityantifa, all one word, dot org. And on that website is uh, article after article after article documenting with great detail um, the individuals, the people, and the groups uh, and their views. So, you know, the, the people trying to hide behind just simply being. Uh, proud Americans, you see some of the vile, nasty stuff that's exposed to this incredible uh, documentation work. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to your group, because it's clear that um, this, what I would call behind-the-scenes, quiet, silent work is happening on an intense level by you folks. Staying on the, on the topic of uh, you know, distinguishing between the different uh, shades of far-right and racist and fascist... Are there important lessons you've learned through this documentation? A big, a big lesson that I'm learning just listening to you folks is the the fact that a lot of oh, like a, a, a typical tactic of far right races is to hide behind some sort of free expression issue or a group like the Proud Boys, while you are spouting and 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 have a plan as to how to spread. Uh, some vicious far-right ideas, but are, are there lessons you've learned tactically and strategically in this concentrated organizing that's happened within the last two years or so in response not just to Patriot Prayer, but in general to, uh, to the normalization of far-right politics that's happened with the election of Trump? Uh, yeah, this is David. Um, well, certainly I think that uh, the, the, there's kind of a wider understanding to you in the general public as well that the whole concept of this free speech issue is really just a smokescreen. 
I think that, you know, it, it's something that back in, in 2000, late 2016 and early 2017, they were really getting a lot of mileage out of arguing for this notion of free speech. But then um, the reality became very apparent. And it, certainly through the, through the help of various anti-fascist groups in documenting this, once their violence and their actual goals became seen, people were like, oh, this isn't actually a free speech issue at all. These people have plenty of speech. They have YouTube channels. They have websites. They have Twitter accounts. They're able to have all the speech they want. The reason that we're going out to, uh, act, to actually deplatform these people in, in public is because they're using these uh, gatherings as a venue for organizing and for propagating uh, violent ideology. And I think that's, that's really uh, kind of come through to a lot of people over the course of 2017. And certainly um, it, took, it took some unfortunate... Um, tragedies for that really to be seen. I think, you know, we, we mentioned the, the max attacks here in Portland, but then also the death of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville in uh, 2017 also really allowed that to hit home for a lot of people that this is, this is not about speech for, for a lot of these groups. It's really about the violence. Um, so that's something that it, it's been satisfying to see people in general catching on to that and, that's not a, a case that we have to kind of argue as much as we used to. And that's, that's really gratifying um, to see, uh, although it's, it's um, unfortunately tragic and, and, and sad that um, it's, it's only been through the actual enactment of violence by a lot of these groups that that's kind of become apparent. Mrs. Isaac, one thing I would add um, in terms of tactical lessons we've learned is really to, for aspiring for anti-fascists out there, is to target your enemies sooner, like figure out who they are and really be proactive. A lot of the time anti-fascism can seem very reactive because oh, a far-right group is called a demo and anti-fascists have shown up in the streets and there seems to be a very clear linear relationship with them. But for instance, with groups like the Proud Boys, our, our research has gone back much further than, you know, they've been seen as a threat in the mainstream. So really like, again, it comes back to research, but a tactical lesson is just doing very in-depth research, figuring out the relationships, and then, you know, seeing, oh, all these people who are sharing all these, ter like, alt-right memes, anti-Semitism, homophobia online are all part of the Proud Boys. This is going to be a very big issue. Yeah, this is David. I, I, would, I would agree very much with that. And it, it's, it's something that we've been able to do, thankfully, um, with, with having a little bit of knowledge about how these groups operate and the sorts of signs to look for, we can kind of predict which groups are going to be uh, on the rise and which groups are maybe diminishing in popularity. And um, that's something that I think um, anti-fascists all over the country um, uh, really take, uh, should share the credit for, for doing that sort of thing, for really driving hard on this research and being aware of the groups that are out there and what they seek to do and therefore being able to educate other activists and other allies in order to bring out these mobilizations against them. Isaac and David from uh, Rose City Antifa. I come from a, an organizing background as well, so I'm a bit of a nerd for some of, some of the, the details and nitty-gritty uh, behind the scenes. And you know, obviously there's some things that are appropriate to get into and some things that aren't, but I, would just, I just want to ask you about how that organizing looks like. So when you're, when you're mobilizing against Patriot Pair, who are the allies that are being reached out to? How is the word getting out? What is the, what is the political culture there in Portland to get that mobilization going? Describe a bit some of that nitty-gritty 
organizing and, and what you're able to describe that's appropriate to describe from the behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, one, of the, one of the big things I'm hearing, of course, is just the research. That's, it's coming back to that political education research, 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 knowing your enemy, exposing the links and the rest of it. But uh, what, what does that look like in, in terms of the day-to-day? And what does that look like when you're, when you're doing a mobilization against uh, one of these uh, Patriot Prayer uh, gatherings? So in terms of mobilizing against gatherings, this is Isaac, um, it can look like a lot of things. It looks like writing an article about the upcoming demo. It looks like social media. It looks like, you know, um, putting out flyers in the streets. It looks like tabling events. It, it really can look like a lot of things. And that can change depending on the demo, depending on kind of what we expect to happen. Um, obviously, for, for demos that we expect to be very large, we will tend to go all out and really, you know, cover the city in posters, you know, table at events, reach out to other leftist groups in the city, um, other anti-fascist groups in the city. Yeah, this is David. Um, yeah, definitely the, being able to reach out to other groups and having uh, them have a background understanding, even if they're not specifically anti-fascist groups, but there are other various socialist groups, um, other anti-racist groups that may not set their sights specifically on targeting anti-fascist or uh, specifically targeting white supremacists and fascist groups, um, but like th- them having an understanding of the, the things that we're facing and the, the sort of general context of the fight and having them be knowledgeable about that then helps them uh, be able to go out and mobilize their networks and reach out to other groups and really kind of get... Um, the, the wider community up in arms about this sort of thing and have them come out. Obviously, anti-fascism isn't always a mass movement. Um, it's certainly, there's certainly elements of what we do that, that don't necessarily reach out to the sort of everyday person on the street, but by um, being able to reach out to other groups who um, have affinities with what we're doing and, and overlaps in terms of... Um, general their their vision for for what a good community looks like we're able to then have them do additional outreach work and then all of us together can mobilize the sort of numbers that we need in order to uh, resist and turn out these uh these fascists and far-right groups that come into our cities isaac and david from road city antifa i want to continue uh talking about strategy and tactics and you know, we've, we've talked a lot about these, these mobilizations, uh, such as your mobilizations uh, recently against the Patriot Pair folks. And, you know, these mobilizations have been good. We've, we've come out with good numbers of people often and been able to either contain, confront, and deal with these folks. And if they're able to march, they're only are able to march with a significant amount of police collaboration and complicity. But it seems to me that in the current context we're in, specifically after the death of Heather Heyer and that being in mainstream consciousness, we can defeat these far-right folks on the streets by just decisively outnumbering them. If they come out with 100, we should be at least 1,000 or 2,000. If they come out with 50, we should be 500. And we've had good numbers at things, but my, my sort of anecdotal observation is that often we're similar numbers or we're not decisively outnumbering them. And to decisively outnumber them, we need to reach out to people, obviously, who maybe aren't comfortable with certain tactics but would come out to a large-scale demonstration that would effectively contain them and shut them down. So is, is that some, is an observation that you share as well, and is, is that a, a challenge for the anti-fascist movement in North America right now? Uh, this is David. Um, 
So, yeah, obviously getting out a large number of people to significantly outnumber them and make them feel like they are the uh, very small minority opinion that they are is, is obviously great. Um, however, you know, in the, in the event that we can't get those numbers, the thing that, that really seems to work is just uh, the, the tenacity of anti-fascist activists to, to stand up to them. And, of course, one of the things that they kind of run off of is uh, violence and intimidation. So being able to stand up to that and being able to show them that they can't just bully uh, anti-fascists off and, and be able to win on that basis is, is really important. And I think just that, that sort of tenacity really goes a, a long way in, in taking the wind out of their sails and making them feel like they're wasting their time and showing them that we're not there to mess around. They might think that this is all a bunch of fun and games that they're going to come out and and beat up some Antifa or something like that. But, you know, this is, this is important, and defending the community is important. And as risky as it is, and as um, costly as that can be to, <coughs> excuse me, to anti-fascists who are either uh, persecuted by the police or perhaps injured in some of these scuffles that break out, um, the, the really the importance of, uh, of sticking around and standing up for what is right in defending our community really goes a long way in, in fighting back against those sorts of groups. So this is Isaac. I would add that it's it's not somewhat surprising it's not surprising to me that there's like crests and, and valleys in terms of mass political engagement with anti fascist tactics because anti fascists intend to be reactive and so when a inciting event like the Death Center Hire or in Portland, um, the actions of the um, Proud Boys and Teacher Prayer on June 30th happened, it incites a um, response from the community, and that response tends to bring out more people. And then that response tends to, you know, put the damp damper on fascist organizing, and for the next demo, there's not as many out there, and people might stay home. So the, the difficulty of the organizing is that when we come out strong, the next time they come, things come out weaker. And so it kind of sends mixed signals to, to people about whether to come out or not. All right. A reminder to our listeners that I'm speaking with David and Isaac, who are two members of Rose City Antifa. Rose City is Portland, Oregon, on the West Coast, and they've been active since at least 2007 in opposing racism and fascism particularly recently against the so-called Patriot Prayer that's spread it up all over the Northwest. Uh, Isaac and David, I, I want to get into the political base of unity of Rose City Antifa. And you speak about opposing fascist organizing through direct action and education. Cool. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think people get that, and that's something people get uh, through the responses you've given so far in terms of how, how you've replied, both in terms of on-the-street mobilization, but also this incredible amount of research on the threat and who these folks are who often try to hide behind patriotism or being pro-Trump or what have you. But you also have a third uh, base unity, which is maintaining political and cultural left spaces. Can you talk a bit about that base unity and, and that that uh, sphere of work and organizing that, that you folks engage in? Sure. So this is Isaac. I think this this point of unity for me is about creating spaces where fascists are uncomfortable and where leftists can create 
culture that allows organization, that allows contact between different leftist groups who might not talk, and allows an anti-fascist ethos to grow within society. So this can look like a lot of things. It can look like having anti-fascist literature at shows or dance events. It can look like reaching out to, um, you know, LGBT events to do security. It can look like having banners at Timbers games. It can look like a lot of different things. But the, the goal of it is to advance an anti-fascist me- message outside of the streets as well, to show people that we are not just black block in the streets, but we're also at these events and are there, are there, are there communities. Yeah, this is David. Um, something that's, you know, kind of uh, key to Portland's recent history, and, and Portland is definitely not unique in this fact, is the fact that there used to be a lot of neo-Nazi groups that felt very comfortable coming out into Portland and going to punk shows, uh, being part of music venues, being part of various music scenes. And the fact that now it is no longer, or now it is not okay for neo-Nazis to be out in the open in the punk music scene and in uh, heavy metal scenes and so on and so forth, is only because of this sort of anti-fascist activism and going into these community spaces and doing the work and fighting the fight in order to make them safe for people again. So this is something that we feel is like very strong uh, to continue. And a lot of people may say, oh, well, you know, what's the, what's the importance of like doing anti-fascist tabling at punk shows? And it's because um, the fact that people can go to punk shows and feel, on the most part, very safe um, to, to be whoever they are out in these spaces is only a really recent thing. Um, and that, that risk is something that was something that was hard fought by anti-fascist activists, and we want to prevent that sort of entryism, the same sort of entryism that we see happening in these political events from happening in cultural spaces. I think as well, these, this is Isaac, these events give people a place to contact us we get a lot of tips and contact with the public, donations through events like these, through contact with people at, you know, football games, um, punk venues, punk shows. It really allows us to, it puts a human face on anti-fascism that is so often ignored um, in media representations of us. I'd like to just uh, explore this a bit more. A lot of what you talk about Reminds me of 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 sort of the creation of an anti-fascist left political culture in Europe, uh, and you mentioned the Timbers, which is a major league soccer team, and in Europe you have a, a lot of that emerging around certain teams um, uh, in Europe. So, uh, part of my question is, do you model that uh, after uh, types of anti-fascist organizing around the world, particularly in Europe? And also a link to that, if you can just talk a bit more about how that how that looks like, especially I guess in the last year or two, uh, the idea of of having a presence at punk shows and in, in different subcultural spaces is something that I think a lot of people understand. But is there anything new, uh, a new a new initiative that has been undertaken as a result of this um, this rise of the or the the so called rise of alt right and the far right in the last two years or so? Yeah, definitely. Uh, this is David. So um, certainly we look um, to, to Europe that for the, the sorts of inspiration there in terms of what they've done in, in their own uh, cultural spaces over there. And that's something that we can see the value of very, very plainly. But I think, um, you know, I think something that's happened over the last couple of years here in the United States is that 
people who were in spaces that they might have once considered to be apolitical in some form, like, say, a, uh, a football uh, a soccer supporter club, um, they're now realizing that that is not an apolitical space. So, like, here in Portland, the, the Timbers Army is, like, a very uh, popular football supporter group. But then, um, you know, now they're seeing, like, the, the sort of incursion of, of Trump supporters and other uh, bigots and other assorted white nationalists sort of trying to encroach into that space. And they're realizing that there's nothing special about a space like that that means that it can't be overtaken by one of these aggressive uh, cultures that sort of banks on violence and banks on this sort of flexing of power in order to gain more supporters and gain more followers. So they've, they've in a sense, become politicized. And I think a lot of them already were already, and that's why it's been no surprise that we're seeing support from groups like this, and we're seeing uh, a lot of crossover between the sort of groups doing anti-fascist uh, activism and, and supporting anti-fascist activism and doing, uh, creating a lot of these cultural spaces and keeping them as, as nice, safe places for people to come and interact with each other. And, and in order to do that, it, it's becoming necessary to sort of politicize that space or at least understand that space as already being political. David and Isaac from Rosary Antifa, I want to move into another topic that seemingly might seem like totally off topic, but it's, I think to me, it's, at least it's linked to what we're just talking about in terms of creating a, a political culture and reaching people where they're at in the spaces they share. And that's a, a question about guns. And just to avoid any confusion for anyone listening, this is not a question related to people who are anti-fascists arming themselves and attacking other, attacking racists or fascists, not at all. Uh, all the tactics and strategies we've been talking about have to do with education, direct action in the streets, uh, self-defense, and what have you. But there is a political culture in the U.S. of gun ownership. There is clearly uh, an obsession with guns by a lot of people on the far right. But there's also a, a steely-eyed uh, acknowledgement by a lot of people on the political left that just can't simply allow the far right to be the ones to be armed and the state to be armed, that if you have the right to be uh, to be armed, you should take advantage of that. And people will draw inspiration from the Black Panthers, for example. There are, there are current groups, some of whom define themselves very clearly and openly as both anti-fascist and anti-racist, like various uh, John Brown gun clubs all over the U.S., Redneck Revolt, that have encouraged a, and quite openly encouraged, less of a moralistic attitude of that exists towards, towards guns and gun ownership. And part of that also has to do with the fact that a lot of communities, maybe outs- more outside of urban areas, gun ownership and other things that relate to that, that's just part of their political culture. And so this is a bit of a long-winded uh, intro to, I guess, what is a simple question about guns, but it's also related to uh, what I see um, You know, here in Quebec. Uh, we have a divide between the urban area of Montreal and the rural areas, not around gun ownership, but around political cultural issues. And the rural areas of Quebec have no immigrants or very few immigrants, and Montreal is a very cosmopolitan place. I sense the same sort of thing happening in various parts of the U.S., for example, in Oregon, where places like Portland are, are more urban and more culturally liberal, but uh, other parts of Oregon are less so. So uh, take that question around guns, like how, how you feel is useful to take it, but uh, I want you to address both the, the tactical, strategical challenge that's been sort of put out there by, by groups like the John Brown Gun Club or Redneck Revolt, both around gun ownership uh, and not being naive about how our opponents uh, are armed and will use those arms against us, 
and also what what lurks uh, behind this gun question in terms of culture and reaching out to people who who we want to be anti-racist and anti-fascist but who, who who share other cultural markers than we might in 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 the scenes that we roll in yeah sure this is david um so i think you know just my own personal opinion is that I, I value every one of the uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights equally in that, you know, that I would, I would as no soon want to give up the Second Amendment as I would the first um, when it comes to, you know, legal rights uh, for, for people in this country. Um, so, you know, but when, when it comes to the fact of anti-fascist activism, you know, we, we've talked a lot about self-defense and how we, how we value self-defense. Uh, as part of the work that we do when we're talking about, you know, doing activism within our community and defending the people who live and work in our community. And I think, um, you know, firearms are, are certainly a tool of self-defense. And that is, that is not a tool that we would want to give up um, when it comes to utilizing a- a- any means that we can in order to defend ourselves and defend our community. And certainly when we look to the white supremacists and we look to the neo-Nazis and the, these groups, you know, groups like Adam Waffen Division, who's a, uh, a very virulent neo-Nazi group with a heavy presence here in the Northwest, we see them training with guns. So that's definitely something that we take into account when we're considering uh, the, the sorts of training that we do and the sort of measures that we would be willing to take in order to defend ourselves and defend people in our community. Could you address? Uh, I, it was a really long question. So, could you address the the part about the sort of cultural divide between uh, rural and urban? If I'm going to use simplistic terms here, so you know, having uh, an anti-racist presence and being part of uh, the timber support groups or at punk shows and in different other cultural spaces in Portland—that's one thing. But the the recruitment strategy. I mean, I think these these far right people are recruiting wherever they can. But um, they seem to have more success in, in other areas outside of those areas. So, could you talk about that challenge? Have uh, have you have you discussed that challenge? Have you been doing things around that challenge? Is is my interpretation of that um, problematic? Uh, address that part of the question if you can. I guess I, I don't feel like the the rural urban divide is is quite as big as all that. However, I I spent a lot of time as a kid living in a rural area, and I know that Portland, being a city of of people who didn't necessarily all grow up within Portland proper. They've moved here from other areas in Oregon, other areas in part of the country. So I know a lot of people that also, uh, you know, came from kind of a, what we call a more rural upbringing. So it's, it, the divide doesn't seem as great to me. I think that there's um, certainly a lot of generalities that you can make along those lines, but, but really there's a lot of crossover there. And I think that what we found is that, you know, we know that there are people in, rural areas who are just as um, staunchly anti-racist and anti-fascist as, as people in urban areas. And we know that there are, there are white supremacists that come from urban areas just as much as they come from rural areas. So it's certainly, while, while there's definitely, you know, the, these kind of generalities that exist and these sort of, um, you know, stereotypes that exist, there's also a lot of uh, crossover there. And I think the, the thing that, you know, some of these groups, like you mentioned, the John Brown Gun Club and others, um, you know, but it, it's something that we see in, in kind of our everyday activism is that we find people of all different kinds of backgrounds coming in and wanting to do this work and wanting to be a part of it because it's important to them. And the values of counteracting 
racism and white supremacy, um, you know, is not limited to any particular demographic or any particular area of the of the country or the or the state for that matter. This is Isaac. I would add that we, we definitely see a lot of value in you know tabling at um, gun shows or trying to make some overtures to these spaces, but um, in some cases for us the, the cost benefit isn't really there like it and so we'd rather I think reach out to communities who have a lot of sympathies with us already. Um, in some cases these um, there are people within you know, uh, the gun scene who do have those sympathies with us, but in terms of, of organizing and trying to get people out there are we have a limited amount of time and so we tend to choose up for our priorities. Um, and sometimes that can lead to not going into spaces like gun shows. Isaac and David from Rose City Antifa, speaking from a park somewhere in Portland, Oregon. Thank you so much for speaking with us on No Borders Media. You're welcome, and thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Open your eyes, time to wake up. Enough is enough, is enough, is enough. Open your eyes, time to wake up. You are listening to a feature-length interview by No Borders Media with two members of Rose City Antifa, one of the long-standing and active anti-fascist groups in North America. No Borders Media, based in Toronto and Montreal, is an autonomous left-wing media network. We share and create content that supports the struggles of communities in resistance, with a focus on the self-determination struggles of indigenous peoples, migrants, refugees, and working-class people of color, all in the context of opposition to colonialism and capitalism. Some current focuses include migrant justice, resistance to borders, anti-fascism, and anarchism. We are in the early stages of our independent media project. To stay in touch, send us an email at nobordersmedianetwork at gmail.com or look for No Borders Media on Facebook and SoundCloud. Much more to come in the coming weeks and months. Living